This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. After a hate speech incident, the grandfather is going into a care home. Uh, Jacob's father is, I don't know if this is a real thing, but almost an alt-Zionist shock jock. <laughs> um, and Julia has found a mobile phone with texts of a compromising nature on it. Moreover, their Israeli cousins are coming to visit and they have slight problems with the Israeli cousins compared to the New York version of Judaism that they espouse. If that wasn't enough, halfway through the novel, but flagged up on the very first page, a seismic event hits Israel, and Israel's enemies see this as the opportunity to finally get rid of the state of Israel. It's an astonishing book that manages to combine the domestic with the geopolitical. It is, as one would expect from Jonathan, witty, it's wry, it's also incredibly plangent, and I was crying on the last page, mostly because it's about an incontinent dog. But <laughs> <laughs> Just to kick things off, Jonathan, although this is the third novel, you have been writing in the interim. You wrote your book on eating animals, brilliant non-fiction book about the politics of vegetarianism and how we deal with the animal world. You wrote a brilliant work with Nathan Englander, looking at the Haggadah, the Haggadah. You did a wonderful art project, Tree of Codes. How did these books lead up to Here I Am? Um, well, first of all, thank you for coming and thank you for um, conducting this interview and for that really wonderful review no. that you wrote. Um, it was true, not wonderful. Uh, <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, I'm not so concerned with truth in that case. <laughs> um, I haven't published a novel in about 11 years, and this is the first reading of any kind that I've done from a novel in, in that amount of time. So it is uh, exciting, it's a little bit scary, and um, just re-familiarizing myself with what literary culture is, and also encountering the changes in literary culture of which I can already tell there have been many, many in the last decade is, is um, a big experience for me and I'm excited to be initiating it here. Um, in terms of those other projects that I worked on, so I just said it had, take, it, it had been 11 years since I published my last novel, but it's not really true to say that it was, it's taken me 11 years to write this book. In fact, I wrote this book probably more quickly than I wrote my previous two novels. It just took me an awful long time to start to sort of set the conditions where I felt that I was working on something that I could <laughs> care about to the degree that is necessary for me um, over the course of however long it would take to write a book. So in my case, I usually write them in about two years or three years. But um, um, that's two years from a starting point, which is very, very, for me at least, hard to find, hard to reach. So as I was sort of moving around, moving around life, which was changing, as everybody's life changes over the course of a decade, um, moving around my own changing sort of imagination and tastes. Um, it was important to continue to feel like a writer, to continue to feel like a productive writer. And so I ended up um, devoting myself to a few projects, which if I had already found some novelistic subject that I was passionate about, I don't know that I would have done which is not to take anything from them, but um, maybe to 
fully explain the place of the novel in my heart, which is sort of the primary art form. It's my primary ambition. It's the thing that I care most about. Um, so I worked on a nonfiction book, Eating Animals, which has, in a way, a lot of resonance with my previous yeah. two books and with this in the sense that it, more than anything else, asks the question, why am I the way that I am? And is there some other way that I ought to be? And is the person that I am, the person that I imagine myself being, is it in any kind of correspondence with my ambitions for myself? So that's one way to describe Eating Animals, a book about factory farming, and it's an equally probably accurate description of this novel, Here I Am. Um, I worked on the Tree of Codes, which was a more experimental art project. I wrote, um, I worked on a TV show for a couple of years, which I ended up walking. Which was that? I, I created a, a show um, that was called All Talk, and I spent about two or three years working on it, um, and we reached the point of actually being about to shoot it. It was cast, it was um, green-lighted is actually the, the correct use of the way to use the word green-lit. Green-lighted, it was green-lighted. <laughs> and, um, and then I had this kind of crisis. I was in a small town on the Danish coast, and we were about a month from shooting the show, and as if the thought had never dawned on me before, um, it occurred to me that I don't actually want to do this. I don't want to spend my life uh, making a TV show, not because I don't value TV, but because it's such a different way of living. And as I explored in Eating Animals and in Here I Am, it, it, wasn't, it didn't correspond to the way that I imagined living or wanted to live. I really enjoyed writing the show, but for anybody who knows anything about TV, it becomes a business at a certain point where there's lots of different players and opinions and things to negotiate and compromises to make. And a wonderful thing about novel writing is there are none of those things. Like, it is a business technically, and I'm sure my publishers are concerned with the business aspect of it, but it's not one that's ever brought to me. Maybe that's because I'm, I have good publishers. Um, it, uh, I don't negotiate with other people. I'm in no way constrained by um, uh, you know, having to finish a novel for next week's episode. You know, it doesn't make any sense. I took my sweet time, obviously. Um, there are no other participants in the process other than my editors, whose input I'm grateful for and never feel like I am or in the way of something that I have in mind. Anyway, that was the first time in my life, this was about two or three years ago, when I said, you know, I actually want to be a, a novelist. And that might sound like a strange thing to say, given that I'd already been a novelist for about 12 years, 13 years. But my first book was, I don't know where my first book came from. You know, I remember distinctly, I was in college, and just to sort of date the world as well as myself, this was before people had internet access in their dorm rooms, much less in their pockets. So we had these things called computer labs, where everybody would go, to check their email, which was like a big event. We and used to ping people <laughs> at that time. <laughs> and we didn't have printers in our room, so we would go to the computer lab to print our stuff. So everybody's printing their five-page like abnormal psychology paper, their seven-page astrophysics paper, whatever. And then you'd have to get in a queue to and you'd watch, okay, it's almost my turn to print. It's almost my turn to print. And I had this like 350-page document <laughs> out. <laughs> and when it came out, I remember sitting there, it's like, phew, phew, 
page after page, I was cracking my knuckles, I was feeling great. And everyone looks at me in part, you know, partly annoyed, maybe even primarily annoyed, but also just like, where, what is this? Where did this come from? And I was one of those people. Like, where, what is this? Where did this come from? I don't remember writing a novel. Um, a lot of, just anecdotally, a lot of novelists I know have had similar experiences with their first books. They just sort of appear. My second book came very quickly on the heels of my first book. And while it perhaps should have been, or you might expect it to have, had have expected it to be sort of a result of deliberation and will and in response to what it was like to become a novelist the first time, in fact, it also just kind of appeared. It came very quickly and was the result of um, intuitions and inertia. And then, for whatever reasons, maybe because I changed, because I had kids, because the world changed, I don't know why, that just wasn't possible anymore. You know, inertia took me to a certain place and then gave out. And then whatever I was going to write next was going to have to be the result of a very different kind of process. And I moved around between projects and between notions of who I was or who I might be or should be, and which culminated with walking away from this TV show and the decision to become a novelist. And it was then that I, um, I broke my contract with my, the publisher I had in order to work again with the, with the editor who, who did everything as illuminated with me and to sort of begin again at the beginning. Um, and, um, and then at that point, things that had been sort of fraught or alienating or confusing became much more joyful. The process just became more joyful. And, and I wrote this book with some speed at that point. Yet it is fascinating when you describe it that way and how all these things have filtered into the novel at some level. The fact that part of the book is uh, a showrunner's Bible, a very postmodern and uh, provocative version of it. The fact that it does have these questions about our relationships with the animal kingdom. The fact that the work on the Haggadah links into a very, very pertinent and very provocative analysis of Judaism both within Israel and without so you can see in ways this is, I suppose critics look backwards while novelists look forward that we can see the sort of steps that lead up to this whereas for you it was a completely uh, different experience I don't look forward or backwards when I'm writing um, it's very much a blind process of having faith in a certain kind of intuition um, you probably know the experience of getting into bed at night after a long day, a particularly tiring day, and maybe the apartment or house is cold and the bed is warm, and you're just, you have that thing right before your body does that weird jerking thing, you know, to sleep. And um, oftentimes, right before I have that, some little idea will pop into my head, and I'll think, well, I am faced with two options. I could, like, get out of bed and find a pen and paper and write this thing down, or I could just assume it's either not that important or that I'll remember it the next morning. Nobody ever remembers it the next morning. In my experience, if I've, if I've had that, if that has happened to me a million times, I've remembered it zero times the next morning. Um, but it's hard to get out of bed because it's more comfortable in bed. Um, and because it feels not only easier, but a safer assumption that it won't really matter. Like that little idea before bed probably doesn't matter. So writing for me is like repeating the act of getting out of a comfortable bed many, many, many times every day. 
Um, I, th I, I think we should make the audience a little bit uncomfortable now and actually hear some of this book, uh, which is so painful in so many levels. Uh, do you want to give us a little reading from Here I Am? Sure. Um, I, could, I could make the audience uncomfortable by reading from this book, but this is not such a passage. Um, okay, so this is sort of tracing the arc of this marriage, and it comes in the context of having just described this sort of romantic night that they spent in an inn um, in the beginning of their marriage, and then it just quickly moves forward through a good bit of time. It's just a, about two pages I'm going to read. And um, Julia is the wife, Jacob is the husband. They're both in their early 40s. She was an ambitious architect who ended up, um, as many do, um, just sort of overseeing bathroom and kitchen renovations. Um, Jacob was an ambitious writer who ended up at a writing table for somebody else's TV show that he doesn't particularly care about. Um, so this is after having described this romantic scene. Julia became pregnant with Sam a year later, then Max, then Benji. Her body changed, but Jacob's desire didn't. It wasn't their volume of, excuse me, it was their volume of withholding that changed. They continued to have sex, although what had always arisen spontaneously came to require either an impetus, drunkenness, watching blue as the warmest color on Jacob's laptop in bed, Valentine's Day, or muscling through the self-consciousness and fear of embarrassment, which usually led to big orgasms and no kissing. They still occasionally said things that, the moment after coming, felt humiliating to the point of needing to physically remove oneself to get an unwanted glass of water. I guess this is a little embarrassing when I'm reading <laughs> um, I think my threshold of embarrassment is now so high that... Um, so, where were we? Ah, yes. Each still masturbated to thoughts of the other, even if those fantasies bore no blood relationship to lived life and often included another other. But even the memory of that night in, in Pennsylvania had to be withheld because it was a horizontal line on a door frame. Look how much we've changed. There are things Jacob wanted, and he wanted them from Julia, but the possibility of sharing desires diminished as her need to hear them increased. It was the same for her. They loved each other's company and would always choose it over either aloneness or the company of anyone else. But the more comfort they found together, the more life they shared, the more estranged they became from their inner lives. In the beginning, they were always either consuming each other or consuming the world together. Every child wants to see the marks ascend the doorframe, but how many couples are able to see progress in simply staying the same? How many can make more money and not contemplate what could be bought with it? How many, approaching the end of childbearing years, can know that they already have the right number of children? Jacob and Julia were never ones to resist convention on principle, but neither could they have imagined becoming quite so conventional. They got a second car and second car insurance, joined a gym with a 20-page course offering, stopped doing their taxes themselves, occasionally sent back a bottle of wine, bought a house with side-by-side -side sinks and house insurance, doubled their toiletries, had a teak enclosure built for their garbage bins, replaced a stove with one that looked better, had a child and bought life insurance, ordered vitamins from California and mattresses from Sweden, bought organic clothing whose price amortized over the number of times it was worn, all but required them to have another child. They had another child. They considered whether a rug would hold its value, knew which of everything was best, Miele vacuum, Vitamix blender, Misono knives, Farrowin ball paint, consumed Freudian amounts of sushi and worked harder so that they could pay the very best people to take care for their children while they worked. 
and they had another child. Their inner lives were overwhelmed by all the living, not only in terms of time and energy required by a family of five, but which muscles were forced to strengthen and which withered. Julia's unwavering composure with the children had grown to resemble omnipatience, while her capacity to express urgency to her husband had shrunk to texted poems of the day. Jacob's magic trick of removing Julia's bra without his hands was replaced by the depressingly impressive ability to assemble a pack and play as he carried it up the stairs. <laughs> Julia could clip newborn fingernails with her teeth and breastfeed while making a lasagna and remove splinters with twe without tweezers or pain and have the kids begging for the lice comb and compel sleep with a third eye massage, but she'd forgotten how to touch her husband. Jacob taught the kids the difference between farther and further, but no longer knew how to talk to his wife. Their inner lives were nurtured in private. Julia designed houses for herself. Jacob worked on his TV show and bought a second phone, and a destructive cycle developed between them. With Julia's inability to express urgency, Jacob became even less sure that he was wanted and more afraid of risking foolishness, which furthered the distance between Julia's hand and Jacob's body, which Jacob had no language to address. Desire became a threat, an enemy to their domesticity. When Max was in kindergarten, he used to give Max as their middle child. When Max was in kindergarten, he used to give everything away. Any friend who would come for a play date would inevitably leave with a plastic car or stuffed animal. Any money that he somehow acquired, change found on the sidewalk, a $5 bill from his grandfather for having made a persuasive argument, would be offered to Julia in a checkout line or to Jacob at a parking meter. He invited his older brother Sam to take as much of his dessert as he liked. Go on, he would say when Sam demurred, take it, take it. Max wasn't responding to the needs of others, which he seemed as capable of ignoring as any child. And he wasn't being generous. That would require the knowledge of giving, which was precisely what he lacked. Everyone has a pipeline through which he pushes what he is willing and able to share of himself out into the world, and through which he takes in all of the world that he is willing and able to bear. Max's conduit wasn't bigger than anyone else's. It was simply unclogged. <coughs> What had been a source of pride for Jacob and Julia became a source of concern. Max will be left with nothing. Careful not to suggest that there's anything wrong with the way he lived, they gently introduced notions of worth and the finitude of resources. At first, he resisted, but there's always more. But as children do, he came to understand that there was something wrong with the way he lived. He became obsessed with comparative value. Could you get one house for 40 cars? It depends on the house and the cars. Or, would you rather have a handful of diamonds or a house full of silver? A, handful, a hand the size of yours, a house the size of this one. He started trading compulsively, toys with friends, belongings with Sam's, with Sam, deeds with his parents. If I eat half of this kale, will you let me go to bed 20 minutes later? <laughs> he wanted to know if it was better to be a FedEx driver or a music teacher and became frustrated with his, when his parents challenged his use of better. He wanted to know if it was okay that his dad had to pay for an extra ticket while they took his friend Clive to the zoo. I'm wasting my life, he would often exclaim when not engaged in any activity. He crawled into bed with them too early one morning, wanting to know if that's what being dead is. <laughs> What's that, baby? Having nothing. The withholding of sexual needs between Jacob and Julia was the most primitive and frustrating kind of withdrawal, but hardly the most damaging. The movement toward estrangement from each other and from themselves took place in far smaller, subtler steps. They were always becoming closer in the realm of doing, 
coordinating the ever-expanding routines, talking and texting more and more efficiently, cleaning together the mess made by the children they made, and farther in feeling. Thank you so much. I think even that brief reading shows you what an eloquent and complex book it is. And we're very lucky that because this is the very first event that Jonathan is doing about the book, um, there will be copies for sale. It's currently under embargo. You'll only be able to buy them tonight uh, and will be in the signing tent afterwards. So do please join us. It's a really worthwhile investment in all kinds of ways. Um, can we talk about it in terms of genre? Because it begins as very much a social realist novel about the real problems of real people. When you make this twist and introduce this geopolitical catastrophe, it isn't quite sci-fi, it isn't quite speculative fiction, but it is merging together two kinds of books, and that seems to be what you've done in the other novels as well. Well, the other novels have um, real, uh, it's like a drum circle underneath us or something. <laughs> It, uh, it has a, it's not unpleasant, it's just <laughs> surreal, uh, undeniable. <laughs> yeah. um, that could be said we'll, of so many things, couldn't we'll, it? We'll, like, we'll get the fireworks later, yeah. so don't worry about it. So I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a doctor and said, it's not unpleasant, it's just undeniable. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so my previous two novels did have like, historical events at their hearts, calamities in fact. And this one has an imagined historical event. I would say not at its heart. Um, I don't think of it as being a book about this global event, this earthquake in the Middle East and the chain of causes and effects that ensue. I think of that event as being a way to, a way, a different way inside the book to get at these central themes, like um, namely home. Where is home? Where does one locate home? What is home as opposed to homeland? Can a home be inside a family? Can it be in a relationship? Can it be in a work of art or something that one produces? Um, can one ever f live in a home? Is it a place that one can actually find a place of rest? Um, and also choice yeah. and the power of choice. So all of the characters in the novel, here I am, I should say, the title comes from uh, one of the most sort of well-known stories across cultures, which is the binding of Isaac. Mm. So that story begins with God calling upon Abraham, um, and Abraham responds, here I am. And God says, Abraham, I need you to do this very unpleasant thing, you know, kill your son. And when Abraham is then leading Isaac up Mount Moriah, and Isaac catches wind of the sort of oddness of the situation, that they have all the makings of a sacrifice without the animal to sacrifice, Isaac says, my father, and Abraham responds, here I am. Yeah, yeah. So those are the here I am's of, I'm unconditionally present for you without reservations. I don't need to know what you're about to ask of me. I will give it to you. I am here. So the problem is, in the case of Abraham's story, it's paradoxical, because you, you can't be unconditionally present for a God who wants you to kill a son, your son, while being unconditionally present for the son who clearly doesn't want to be killed. Um, Every character in this book and probably every person in this room is familiar with that feeling of these paradoxes of identity. Um, a lot of parents feel it. You know, I would say it is not only difficult, but, but definitionally impossible to be both 
a um, unconditionally present parent while being um, the most ambitious um, professional you are or could be in the world. One always is always giving and taking. You know, I will unfortunately miss the chorus performance on Friday night because I have to go do this thing for work, but I will sacrifice this thing at work so I can be at the soccer game on Saturday. That's a very mundane version of it. People know what these paradoxes are like, or many people have experience with different sets of values. For some people, it's like religious and secular. For some people, it's um, within a country or um, within uh, you know the, the different scales of communities that we live in. Some people feel these paradoxes inside of relationships, like to be in a devoted marriage while also maintaining a feeling of um, individuality in the world. Whatever they are, most of us most of us have them, and most of us are able to live with them. They're not. In, particularly destructive or even painful. They're just sort of, they're there and we're sort of aware of their presence and maybe every now and then they create a discomfort, but we can live with them until we can't, until some kind of crisis arises that brings them to the surface and um, if the crisis is extreme, forces a choice. So in this book, there, there are really two major crises. One is the discovery of a cell phone, which seems yeah. to reveal an, a marital infidelity. And the other is this earthquake in Israel, which precipitates a war, which um, becomes so scary that the prime minister of Israel asks all um, American Jews over a certain age to come to Israel to fight. And so these identities, these paradoxical identities are suddenly brought into very, very sharp focus. Um, and these um, urgent moments of decision and Jacob, who is arguably the hero of the book, although I think what I'm describing applies to most of the characters in the book, has to say, well, I had been, here I am, and here I am, as if that were possible, and now it's been made apparent that it's impossible, so really, where am I? When you write about the um, counterfactual history in terms of this speculative event in Israel, it struck me that there's been a number of books by writers like Michael Shibon in the Yiddish Policeman's Union, or Shalom Auslander in Hope a Tragedy, that have been very bold in dealing with Jewish identity uh, and Jewish history, often by using counterfactuals that at some points, um, I've read the books and thought, would it be possible for a non-Jewish writer to write about these topics? Um, who has ownership of the story in this? One of your characters, Irv, you know, when somebody makes a, an, one of the children makes an off-colour joke about the Holocaust, says, you know, some, uh, says, oh, is it too soon? And Irv uh, talks about the fact that it's all right to make these jokes as long as there isn't a goyish cell in your body. Um, do you feel that only some writers can have ownership of stories that are this large? I mean, if a, if a non-Jewish writer was to write a book about the destruction of Israel, I think it would be a very different proposition. Well, it would. Um, I don't know if it should, but the reality is it would. Um, just as if I were writing about the destruction of Canada, it would be very different than writing about the destruction of Israel. Um, certain things are just loaded. And well, we can all agree about Canada. Right. <laughs> um, listen, we're all going to end up in Canada before you uh, <laughs> badmouth it too much. Um, certainly I am. <laughs> uh, 
I don't believe in ownership. I don't believe in things being appropriate or inappropriate to write about. I believe that there are books that work and books that don't work. And it's, um, sometimes, it sometimes seems obvious that an idea is um, not promising, um, but then sometimes that's you know, proven wrong. So it, it's not something that I'm worried about. And in fact, I think like that kind of questioning in advance of writing a novel can only be harmful. You know, obviously when we're sitting here as sort of readers of books, it's quite different. But when, when writing, I, um, one of the most Im sort of important creative acts I find is the repressing of questions. Like not asking, is this appropriate or inappropriate? Not asking, is this funny or not? Is this smart or stupid? And, and most importantly, will anybody care? Because, um, that all of those questions, but particularly the last one, depend upon making generalizations about readers, that literature is actually the antidote, the antidote to those generalizations. Um, when I wrote my first book, Everything is Illuminated, which is in, in many ways a quite Jewish book, I suppose you would say, um, pretty much however you define that, I um, made assumptions about who would respond to it. And one of the first interviews that I did um, was for a radio show in Philadelphia, and the first caller on this call-in show said, um, oh, I want to thank you, you wrote my family's story, and uh, we had always found these things difficult to talk about, but you gave a kind of expression that felt like safe and redemptive, and I was very happy hearing this, this nice comment, and I imagined the person on the phone on the other end of the line basically being me, you know, like a person of that age, or Jewish guy. Um, and then he went on, he said, being a 65-year-old black man in Trenton, I've often found, <laughs> and I had like a similar internal, my laugh was internal because I was on the radio, but I had a similar laugh. And then I felt very ashamed of my laugh because what was I laughing at? And I was laughing at the notion that this person and difference. I could share yeah. a story. Yeah. Um, when that is not only a good thing about literature, it is the you know, primary good thing about literature. Um, Zbigniew Herbert, the Polish poet, said that the imagination is the instrument of compassion. And there are all kinds of ways that we can describe our lives and share them with others. You know, I could tell you that I am uh, this tall, that I weigh this amount. I can tell you, I could show you a an x-ray photo of my skeleton. I could um, give you a kind of journalistic accounting of where I've been and exactly what I've done. But none of those are going to elicit compassion in the same way that sharing my imagination, which might stray very, very far from the circumstances of my life. N nothing will, I think, engender compassion in the same way that the imagination does. Um, so what I'm interested in is like the freest expression or the most like direct and powerful expression of the imagination. And whatever it takes it will, will ultimately be justified. The novelist Andrew Hagen refers to novels sometimes as machines for generating empathy, mm. which does seem to be the primary function of literature that way. And some of the things that you make us empathise with in this book um, are quite different to what, we were, what you were doing in the previous books. You know, the first novel was a quest novel, more or less, and about two people, two men, being able to negotiate with each other across various kinds of cultural divides second book dealing with 9-11 through the eyes of a child. What you do in this book, which is very bold, is write honestly and eloquently 
and at times tragically about desire and the death of desire, was it difficult to write that kind of more sexualized version of prose? Um, well, it's all difficult. You know, it's just things are difficult in difficult ways. Um, I don't know exactly what you mean. Was it difficult technically? Was it emotionally no, difficult? Technically, technically to do that because, you know, often um, we have an internal sensor. The thing that was going to say this is, you know, even when you said uh, these aren't, you know, the, your level of embarrassment is mm. lesser than, than the audience at points. You know, just that technical way of getting over writing about things which most of us keep very private in our lives. And, you know, did you have to sort of cut the internal censor and really... I think I lack an internal censor. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when, when writing I do, certainly in, in life I, am, I can be quite a shy person and not necessarily a forthcoming person. In writing, I don't, it's, um, I don't know if, it's a res if it is actually a response to that or if it's just feeling the thrill of the freedom of a sort of the lack of constraints, you know, on a page, on a blank page. But um, I find that writing is difficult when I am ultimately not interested in it or when I don't ultimately believe it's true. And I can pretend that I believe in it. I can pretend that it seems true for quite a while, sometimes for 100 pages or 200 pages. And then I just have to admit that I, I mean, the machine that you're describing begins to slow down, and there's more and more friction in the machine, and it starts to seize up because, like, the fuel in it, which has to be, I think, like, a genuine personal concern, um, runs out. And so when I care about something, I find writing um, easy. And by easy, I don't mean technically easy, because it is extremely laborious. It takes a huge amount of time, and I require a lot of help to do it in the way that I want to. I mean easy in the sense of desiring to return to it. The thing that is most difficult about writing is not writing good sentences. It's not creating believable characters. It's not creating an arc that will be suspenseful or captivating to a reader. It's um, resisting the desire to stop. You know, I, I teach writing at NYU. And I've been teaching now for eight years, 10 years. All but m maybe this many students have stopped. They just stop. And, and it's not because they aren't talented. A lot of them I, I have thought are more innately talented than I am. They just, there's so many incentives to stop. There's logistical incentives like it can be very hard to make a living as a writer. Um, there are emotional incentives to stop like you're at a party and everybody asks what everybody's doing and oh I work for you know Hillary Clinton oh that's great what do you do I work for Goldman Sachs what do you do I like hang out in my parents basement and <laughs> eat ramen and work on a you know don't work on a novel that's you know going nowhere um, and then simply like facing the page wherever a writer is in his or her career I can't think of anything that challenges one's self-confidence more powerfully it is a true confrontation with one's own limits, like um, the limits of one's imagination, the limits of one's just selfhood. If a book stinks, it's because you stink. I mean, there, there is no other reason. Like, that's how it feels as a writer. I have no boss. I have nobody telling me what I have to do. I'm fully free. So whatever I produce is a result of the best that I have to offer. And if it's not good, it's because the best that I have to offer is not good. That's the equation as I hold it in my mind when I'm writing. 
if something is inauthentic on the page, it's because something is inauthentic inside of me. So when I find material that I desire to return to, then I've overcome the most difficult part of writing. And I am inclined to return to material that I care about and feels true to me. And the main subjects of this book, which um, I think are a different way to say what you just said, are withholding, mm -hmm. like emotional withholding. I don't know that it's so much the loss of desire as like the encroachment of withholding, um, because these characters actually do desire each other. They do. And that's what's, I think, poignant about it. I think to the very end, they love each other. They yes, are they in do. love with each other, and they want to reach out. I described the experience of them in bed at night, and each is sort of like looking at their hands, thinking like, just reach out. Why won't you do it? My brain is instructing you. Reach out. And the hand is saying like, I can't. I don't know why I can't, but I cannot. And for two people to simultaneously experience the desire to reach out and the inability to reach out is really poignant to me. Um, and, and so the, returning to that because it is poignant to me and because it feels true to me was a joy, not, which is not to say a happiness. Like, the joy and happiness are two totally different things, but it was joyful to return to it. And it just struck me as you were saying that, that of course the Israeli prime minister in it is also reaching out and expecting, uh, hoping for some form of connection in it. So the political and the personal do interbreed again. I'd like to get the house lights up because I'd like to hear from the audience. Um, we'll come to this person in the front row first. I can't actually see the clock. Um, so we'll just run it for roughly. Do you want to bring the clock over? That'd be super. So your question. Hi, thank you so much for reading. That was fascinating. Um, just when you were talking, it struck me that I was really interested to hear particularly what you would consider success to be. Um, I think for creative people, it is sometimes more challenging because um, your books might be hugely successful, but what does it personally mean? Is it the joy of returning to the material? Is it connection with people? I was just interested to hear if you've thought about that. My, just my own personal definition of success, you mean? Sure, I think about it a lot. Um, um, there's a poem whose title is something like, it's a Yehuda Amachai poem, which is something like the blurriness of joy and the precision of pain, something like that. Um, I know what failure is, like, really well. I, could, I would have no, no problem describing that to you. Success is a little bit more elusive. Um, I can tell you that when I finished this book, when I turned in the first like, really complete draft, I felt a kind of gratification and pride that I had not felt at any point in, in my life um, with any previous book or with any ac activity, actually. And it's not because I thought the book was good. It's because I was um, so grateful to have arrived at that place. Um, there's a Jewish prayer, the Shehechianu, which is basically which is said the first time you experience something, the first time you see something, um, and it's a, it translates approximately to like a prayer of gratitude to have arrived at this moment. And, you know, the book ends with the character saying, I'm ready. Um, and which is a kind of peculiar ending for like a 600 page book to end with that beginning. But that's how I felt when I finished this book. I felt grateful to have arrived at the place of um, believing in something that I made. And which may, you know, this is not to like diminish anything I've done before, but it may be the first time I wholly felt that, that I, 
that I that I I have had the sort of here I am relationship to something that I wrote, um, and also feeling ready, like you know, to move into a, a new stage of like the creative process or or writing. So, um, one way to answer your question is that my definition of success will not be changed by anything that happens from this point forward with regard to this book. I felt success when I finished the book, that I was able to maintain the, the level of interest that, I, that matters to me over, for enough time to be able to say, I have reached the end on my own terms. The readiness is all, as Hamlet says. Let's have another question, if you just come to this person here. Your debut novel, Everything is Eliminated, was incredibly successful, um, just to use the word again. And you were relatively young in writing terms. Have you ever felt intimidated by your former authorial self at any point in time? Are you being bullied by a younger version of yourself? <laughs> you know, I still am relatively young. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I... I feel alienated from that self. I don't feel at all intimidated. I cannot remember what it was like to be that person. I don't remember the process of writing the book. I don't honestly remember the process of publishing the book. I have not read the book since I wrote it. Um, on the odd occasions when I've had to go back and look at something um, in it, I have, I'm just surprised by it. Sometimes really pleasantly surprised, sometimes like a little bit em embarrassed by choices that I made. but. Um, you know, one doesn't have a life to compare one's life to. So I've had my life, and um, I've had my experiences, and I think of myself as the, as the luckiest writer that I know. Um, you know, when I published that, that book, before I published the book, I'd sent it to a dozen agents, all of whom rejected it. And I finally found an agent, and she sent it to every publisher in New York, all of whom rejected it. And then that agent fell ill and had to stop working, and I found a different agent after another string of rejections. And then the very same book, with all the same words in the same order, um, initiated this um, auction among publishing houses, um, many of whom had rejected the same book. You know, <coughs> So I got a very important lesson at the beginning that it's an extremely capricious marketplace. Um, it's not to take anything away from the pride that I feel about that book, but it forced me to recognize that I was also quite lucky. Um, so I, I, you know, the only relationship I have, I guess, to that experience is, is really gratitude. Some more questions. Come to the front right here and then somebody over there. Okay. Then we'll try to work up to the back slightly. What do you think about um, that movies that are based on your non-fictional uh, books? Uh, the movie, the movies that are based on the on the novels. Yeah, um, I don't give them a whole lot of thought. They were great in the sense that they brought a lot of readers to the books. I wasn't involved in either of them. Um, the first one I, I saw in a movie theater. You know, just like a moviegoer, I bought a ticket to see the the film. <laughs> um, the second one. I, w I was slightly more like familiar with the process because I became friendly with the producer, who is the person who I worked on this TV show with. His name is Scott Rudin. Um, I mean, there it's one can have like uh, aesthetic anxieties about a film being made of one's book, and I completely understand that. 
and I share some of them, and I understand writers who just don't want it to happen. To me, the good that comes in terms of bringing people, I mean, this, you should know the scale of like movies and TV absolutely dwarfs the scale of literature, at least in America. So um, it brought m you know, multiples of readers the, to the book than it otherwise would have had. Um, you know, was I worried that people would like only be able to hear Tom Hanks's voice when reading my book? Not, not especially. No, that didn't keep me up at night. And, and certainly it's better than hearing no voice and never reading the book, you know, which is the alternative. You know, it's not like those people were going to otherwise... Anyone who came to the book because of him in a movie where people were, weren't going to come to the book otherwise, and so maybe, maybe they liked it on its own terms. I, w I was wondering, because um, it seems from your previous two books, that, and indeed from what we've heard of this one, that it's quite um, sort of important themes, you could say, are um, self-identity and the way you identify yourself and family ties. So I was wondering how you feel like if the two are related, like how um, family relations affect your own self-identity. That's one of those questions where like it seems so obvious to me I'm not even sure where the question is you know like sometimes people say like you write about um, I remember when my last book came out actually people said you write about family a lot you know why do you write about family so much and I just didn't even understand the question you know like especially when you know I remember at the time saying like nobody asks JK Rowling why she writes about wizards so much but <laughs> Like, that's a genuinely weird choice, right? Like, <laughs> nobody, like, wrestles with wizards that I know of, or, like, and yet I've never met a person who doesn't wrestle with family, um, even if, even, or perhaps especially if family is absent, or if it's a fraught relationship. So, um, I just can't imagine that there's anyone in this room who doesn't make some kind of strong connection between personal identity and familiar relationships and for whom those aren't central themes, you know, in life. I, 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 there are a lot of things I don't know about what I will write in the future. Like, I don't know if the next novel I write will have any Jewish content. I don't know if it will be contemporary. I don't know if it will be in uh, some genre. Um, but I, f I feel like it's a safe bet that it will have something to do with family and identity, personal identity. Can we see some more hands for questions? If we go to Gentlemen, his hands up, or if you just pass it along afterwards. Hi, I was just wondering if you could give us an overview of your writing process, and in particular how you deal with plot. Um, you know, it seems to me from what you've said that, you have, that your writing process is quite intuitive, and you have that maybe Henry James notion of Donne, and you just have an idea and you go with it. But you know, just giving it would be interesting to know how you deal with plot and the extent to which you plan and how detailed the plans are, or if you kind of just see where the writing takes you. I often um, plan retrospectively, like <laughs> I, you know, will like I used to go on drives like that when I was a kid with my dad. You know, we would just drive and get lost and end up somewhere, and then we'd like unfold the map on the hood of the car and say like okay so this is where this is the path that we took this is where we were so writing is a, is different because you can actually know then what you know now you know so you can make the drive look at the map and realize it would have been good if you had made this stop and this stop and there's this point of interest here and this scenic overlook there and then you can actually go back and and do it so when i 
write, I do write very intuitively without any kind of plan or argument to make. I don't have characters who's, I've, who've been living in my mind and I don't have some kind of voice that I've found. I really start with nothing. And in the process of writing, I, I begin to come to ideas and come to character and structure. And then at a certain point, I look back at what I have done and I try to make use of it. And so I end up throwing away a lot. I end up rearranging a lot. I take things that I had thought were two different projects and push them together. I take things that I had thought was just one project and split it apart. So it's a very inefficient way of writing, but I think it, it produces results that I trust more than I trust um, plans that I would make or the fulfillment of my ideas. This gentleman here? No? Another, if we come to this lady here. Good evening. I really enjoyed Everything is Illuminated, which I read when it came out. I'm really curious to know what motivated you to make the protagonist Jonathan Safran for? Why did you use your own name? Do you remember? <laughs> um, so you're asking one Jonathan Safran for why another Jonathan Safran for made a character Jonathan Safran for. Um, I, I can tell you that I, I remember that it always felt like the right way to write the book and that um, my reasoning, which again was probably retrospective rather than something that I had planned, had to do with the interplay of history and story, you know, which that book is really, is, it's one of its central concerns, concerns, the collision of how we imagine things to be with how they actually are and how we fill absences um, with inventions and then these characters fill these kinds of absences in their own lives with invented selves. You know, the Jonathan character does it, the Alex character does it. And it felt, you know, when you name a character in the book, when you give a character in the book a real name, but particularly the name of the author, it encourages just a different kind of reading where you, you have to wonder. You know, I know I probably invited a little bit of that with this book, but in that case, you really ha you were com forced to wonder what here is true and what isn't true, which was the quest that the characters themselves were on. So it felt like the form following the content. Friend of mine did a novel where he used his own name in it, and always said afterwards it was so that so that nobody would think that this repellent character was anyone was anyone else. <laughs> 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 he didn't want his friends to think that they'd been sort of plagiarized into this <laughs> form. There was a question just over here. If you wait for the microphone, and then we'll come to the lady two back afterwards. Okay, thanks. Hi, Jonathan. Um, some of the themes you've described, I think you mentioned. Um, that's one of the themes is w what is home um, and also some of the themes that have just arisen from the last question about identity. Um, it made me think of Philip Roth's The Counterlife. Um, was that book an inspiration at all? Um, yeah, a lot of his books have been inspiration. Um, you know, of, of his, for this specific book, it has some resonance with Operation Shylock and some resonance with um, Plot Against America. I honestly wasn't really thinking about them though when I wrote this book. I found myself thinking for whatever reason about The Ghostwriter, which is maybe my favorite book of his and it's a very slim one. Um, it's a very quiet book um, compared to his others, uh, but, but has this kind of like whopper of a bombshell um, revelation uh, about halfway or two thirds of the way into it. But um, 
if I was thinking about him, it was probably not so much specific to any work, but rather his like use of argument and just the proliferation of argument and the ability to make many, many arguments without making one argument, if that makes sense. And this book makes a lot of arguments. You know, mm. it's, it's like an equal opportunity arguer, but there's <laughs> not, it, I, it's not furthering a point. That's not the kind of book that it is. And I'm curious when people read it, to what extent they will apply like argument to it. You know, thinking, I, I, I've had a number of people who have said to me, oh, I thought this was gonna be a case against marriage, when in fact it made me wanna try harder with my relationship. And I've had the opposite. Like, geez, I want to get divorced after reading your book. <laughs> uh, I've had people say, you know, are you worried that this is going to like sound like a sort of knee-jerk pro-Israel book? And I've had people say, are you worried that this is going to sound like a knee-jerk anti-Israel book? It, ha it has a little bit of everything in it. I don't, I'm not interested in reading or writing fiction that presents an argument. But some of my favorite fiction is filled with argument, arguments, the plural. So I really wanted to, to sort of like create this chorus of voices, which is something that Roth didn't like create, but he may be the master of. This will just have to be the last question. There's a lady just two behind. Um, I was just going to ask you about the, um, the Twin Towers book. Um, I don't, I'm scared of saying the title because it was incredibly good, but extremely easy to get muddled up. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, 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 but having it set against the um, bombing of Dresden, I just wondered, is, was that a conscious decision that you made to do that or, or did that just emerge more subconsciously? Hmm. Um, it was both. I know that sounds like an impossible answer, but it was both. Like I, I was led to reading about Dresden, just sort of following different intuitions. And then, you know, at a certain point I made, of course I made the decision to include it rather than to just keep it off at the periphery. Um, but I wasn't trying to make any larger historical point. There is, there was interesting resonance, I suppose, between those two events. But again, that's not the kind of book that I was trying to write or would want to write. I think we're nearly out of time, but Jonathan, if you could give us another brief reading to end on, that'd be wonderful. Sure, I can't promise it will be brief, though. Um, I don't mind What if I end that. up liking it? Um, okay, so this is from this section called The Bible in the book. And it's using Bible in a very specific sense. When someone creates a TV show, often they will cr um, create this accompanying document called the Bible for the show, which sort of explains the setting, some of the characters, gives information to the network who might be considering buying it. It shows that you've given sufficient thought to like, that they should trust that you could see it through a number of seasons. So this character, Jacob, has this secret TV show, which he never shares with anybody about his family and he's been doing it for years and years and years and at a certain point the bible for the show overtakes the show itself um, and it becomes hundreds of pages long and it's the only part in the book that's um, in the first person and i'm going to read two short entries which don't don't require all too much background the first oh and it's all in the form of how to play so they're notes to future actors who would play the members of his family how to play the last holy happy moment let's do something special I suggested a month before Julia's 40th birthday. Something unlike us, a party, a blowout, band, ice cream truck, magician. A magician? Or a flamenco dancer? No, she said. That's the last thing I'd want. Well, even if it's the last, it's still on the list. 
She laughed and said, it's sweet of you to think of that, but let's do something simple, a nice dinner at home. Come on, we'll make it fun. Fun for me would be a simple family dinner. I tried a few times to persuade her, but she made clear with increasing force that she didn't want a big deal. You're sure you're not just protesting too much? I'm not protesting at all, she said. The thing I most want is to have a nice, quiet dinner with my family. The boys and I made her breakfast in bed that morning, fresh waffle, kale and pear smoothie, huevos rancheros. We whispered wishes to the elephant at the zoo, an old birthday ritual of unknown origin, collected leaves in Rock Creek Park for pressing into the Book of Years, another ritual, ate lunch at one of the outside tables at her favorite Greek restaurant in DuPont Circle. We went to the Phillips Collection, where Sam and Max feigned interest so earnestly and poorly, Julia was moved to tell them, I know you love me, it's okay to be bored. <laughs> it was getting dark when we made it home, with half a dozen bags of groceries for dinner supplies. I insisted that we not shop for any other meals, even though there were things we needed. Today, I said, we'll not be utilitarian. I gave Sam the key and the boys ran ahead into the house. Julie and I unloaded the bags on the island and started putting away the perishables. Our eyes met and I saw that she was crying. What is it? I asked. You're going to hate me if I tell you. I'm sure I won't. Well, you'll be extremely annoyed. I'm pretty sure there's an annoyance moratorium on birthdays. And then, really letting the tears come, she said, I actually wanted a big deal. <laughs> I laughed. It's not funny. It is funny, Julia. It's not that I knew what I wanted and hid it from you. I wasn't trying to be disappointed. I know that, I said. I meant what I said at the time. I really did. It wasn't until right now, not even when we entered the house, but right this second that I realized I really wanted a big deal. I did. It's so stupid. What am I, eight? You're 40. I am, aren't I? I'm a 40-year-old who doesn't know herself until it's too late. And to make matters worse, I'm dumping it on you, as if you could respond with anything other than guilt or hurt. Here, I said, handing her a box of or. God, I don't even know how you say this word. It's a kind of pasta, those little orecchietti. It's a classic writerly moment. Here, I said, handing her a box of spaghetti. <laughs> put these away. I've now killed a really sweet moment, but put these away. That's as far as your sympathy can reach, she asked. Hey, what happened to the annoyance moratorium? Oh, no, that's a one-way street, and you know it, she said. Put the pretentious pasta away, I said. No, she said. No. Today, I won't. I laughed. It's not funny, she said, banging the counter. It's so funny, I said. She grabbed the box, ripped off the top, and poured the pasta on the floor. I made a huge mess, she said, and I don't even know why. I told her, put the empty box away. <laughs> the box? Yes. Why, she asked. To create a depressing symbol? No, I said because understanding oneself isn't a prerequisite for being understood. She inhaled, understanding something she didn't yet understand, and opened the pantry door. Out spilled the boys and the grandparents and Mark and Jennifer and David and Hannah and Steve and Patty. <laughs> and someone turned the music on and it was Stevie Wonder and someone released the balloons from the hall closet and they jangled the chandelier and Julia looked at me. How to play Unbroken Rings. For his first trick, the magician asked Julia to pull a card from an invisible deck. Look at it, he said, but don't let me see it. With the roll of her eyes, she obeyed. You know your card? 
She nodded and said, yeah, I know my card. Now, please throw it across the room. With an over-dramatized wind-up, she hurled the invisible card. The gesture is beautiful to watch, the fakeness of it, the generosity of its spirit, how quick it was and how long it took, the movement of her ring through the air. Max, your name is Max, right? Can you go fetch the card your mother just threw? But it's invisible, he said, looking to his mother for help. Get it anyway, the magician said, and Julia nodded permission. So Max happily waddled across the room. Okay, got it, he said. Anne, could you please tell us what the card is? Max looked to his mother and said, but I can't see it. Tell us anyway, the magician said. And I can't remember what the different kinds of cards are. Hearts, spades, clubs, and diamonds, any number two through ten, or joker, jack, queen, king, or ace. Right, Max said, and again looked to his mother, who again let him know it was okay. He examined the invisible card, held it right up to his squinting eyes. It's a seven of diamonds. The magician didn't have to ask Julia if it was her card, because she was crying, nodding and crying. We ate some cake, we cleared out the dining room and did some silly dancing. We used paper plates and disposable cutlery. The magician stuck around for a while, doing close-up magic for whoever would pay attention. That was really great, I told him, patting him on the back, surprised and repelled by his skinniness. It was just perfect. I'm glad. Feel free to recommend me. It's how I get my jobs. I certainly will. He did the classic linked rings trick for me. I'd seen it countless times, but it was still a thrill. My dad was the magician at my fifth birthday, I told him. He opened with that. So you know how it's done? Yeah, broken rings. He handed them to me. I must have spent five full minutes searching for what had to be there. What happens if the trick goes wrong? I asked, not yet ready to return the rings. How would it go wrong? I don't know, someone takes the wrong card or lies to you or the deck falls. I never perform a trick, he said. I perform a process. There's no outcome I need. I told that to Julia in bed that night. There's no outcome he needs. Sounds Eastern, she said. Well, definitely not Eastern European, I said. No. I turned off the bedside light. That first trick, or process. Max really said your card? Oh, I didn't actually pick one, she said. No? I wanted to, but I just couldn't bring myself to. So why did you cry, I asked. And she said, because Max still could. That's the end. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here. It is an exceptional, astounding, and terribly moving work. We will be going around to the bookshop to do the signing uh, and come up and speak to Jonathan if you didn't get a chance to ask a question. I'll just end with one line from the book, which I think is my favorite line of any book I've read this year, which is at one point where the character says, without love, we die. With love, we also die. Please thank, once again, Jonathan Saffron for More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.